If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favourite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What happened to Britain after the Romans left? Well, as today's guest will reveal, that's a question that's puzzled historians for a very long time. It's something that Max Adams grapples with in his new book, The First Kingdom, which tries to piece together the story of Britain between 400 and 600 AD. I spoke to him about some of the current theories about the era and why Arthurian myths have proven so popular. Your new book pieces together the centuries following the fall of Roman Britain in around 400 AD. I think this is a time that often falls between two stools almost of the major historical epochs that grab the limelight. Why did you think that this was the time that you wanted to write a book about? I'm an early medievalist, which means, you know, the Dark Ages are my thing. And I, I suppose early medievalists start with the Venerable Bede. He's the great historian of Western Europe in that period. And he takes us back to this very, very obscure period that we call the Dark Ages after the Romans supposedly leave and before Bede's sources become reliable. And even Bede, who is, you know, the most fantastic source of history, he covers the 150 years from about 440 onwards in something like 19 lines, of an extremely long history of the English church and peoples. So Bede cannot stretch back into this period. There are no Roman sources. We've lost coinage, we've lost industrial pottery manufacture, we've lost all our dating material. The only narratives we have are a letter from St. Patrick, um, a ranting fundamentalist sermon from a, a, a bishop who we can't even date, and a few obscure notices in continental uh, sources. So it's irresistible for an archaeologist to tamper with that period. And I suppose in the end, every 
early medieval archaeologist has got to take this on. It's a bit like an actor taking on Lear. Sooner or later, you're going to have to have a stab at it. Um, You describe the centuries after the Romans left as a fascinating laboratory. I wonder if you could explain a bit more what you mean by that. Well, archaeologists have spent the last 100, 150 years showing that archaeology as a discipline can deliver. It can find out how old things are. It can sometimes say when things happened. It can never say why things happened, but it can very often say how things happened. Archaeology delivers process. And if there's one thing we can be sure of uh, in this period, it's that Britain in 400 looks very, very different from Britain in 600. So you've got this black hole into which our history tumbles. And this is the period when archaeology has to deliver. Unfortunately, the tools that we normally have at our disposal are either missing for this period or we're not sure how to use them. And by that I mean, first of all, we, re- we rely on things we can date. Um, so that means wet pieces of wood, which have tree rings in them. Roman coins don't arrive here after about 390-400. So our, we can say when things happened after a certain time, but not when. Pottery, which we also use to date sites, um, is not really being made in industrial quantities anymore. And the, the other sort of help me get out of jail free card for archaeologists is, is radiocarbon dating, uh, which can normally supply dates within sort of 50 years. Well, even 50 years is not much cop for those 200 years, but in particular for those 200 years, we have this frustration that uh, radiocarbon dating relies on the amount of carbon in the atmosphere being absorbed by living things, being not absolutely constant, but being on a sort of gentle curve. For those two centuries, it just so happens that the carbon atmospheric content goes haywire. So so even radiocarbon dating is not helping us. So we've we've got all these theoretical tools that we we should be able to use. We we can see that in the ruins of a Roman villa somebody's dug a hole through the mosaic floor of the dining room and built a, an iron smelting forge. But we don't know who did it. We don't know why they did it. But they don't, we don't know in what circumstances it happened. And nor can we say when. Uh, the same is true of Roman towns. We get this sort of big blanket of dark earth covering them. What, what is it? What does it mean? Where does it come from? And so you've got to do some pretty nimble thinking to try and understand how a world that is seems to be changing so rapidly um, is is actually functioning. Well, that's it, it, that is intriguing because I think as a layperson, I would say, well, is this absence of evidence just evidence for the fact that society in Britain collapsed essentially and nothing was really going on at the time? But would you interpret that the same way? Well, it's the old question. It's it's first year, first term undergraduate archaeology degree. Is this evidence of absence or is it absence of evidence? Are we missing something because we're not looking in the right place or is there nothing to find? And increasingly, sensitive archaeology is showing that the stuff is there. It's pretty hard to get at. And when we do get at it, it's quite difficult to understand what's going on. However, 
I mean, what what I've tried to do in in the first kingdom is get away from what we might call traditional nationalistic interpretations of this period, which is all about uh, Britons who were slaves, Anglo-Saxon invaders, Romans, as if these sort of national rules of ethnicity apply in this period. Well, uh, I think those are very unhelpful ways of looking at it, but archaeology and and, and the, the history of that period has been completely shackled by that nationalism, partly because the only historian we have for this period, a, a monk called Gildas, you, you would think of him now as a sort of ranting fundamentalist, sermon-bashing uh, priest, a fulminating, you know, you're all going to die sort of priest, um, which isn't really very helpful. So he uses all sorts of pejorative terms, you know, Saxons are filthy dogs, um, bad Christian kings are the, are the, you know, the bastard children of, of prostitutes and so on. I mean, he's, he's a, <laughs> he doesn't um, mince his words, but it's not very helpful for reconstructing history. Um, and archaeology is trying to portray a much more subtle picture of of responses to this well well what is it is it catastrophe is it revolution or is this an evolution that is too subtle for us to keep a close eye on and what's your verdict there what how do you think that we should view the fall of rome well uh, f- first of all there aren't many romans uh, certainly not in britain <laughs> so you know the idea of the idea of uh, Britain being overrun by I- Italian sword wielding legionaries is is a it certainly doesn't apply in the fourth century. Britain is British. I mean, you you start with language. Um, the language spoken by the people in Britain at the time when the Roman Empire is sort of collapsing around its own ears is is a language we would call Britonic, which is recognisably the antecedent to Welsh. Uh, some late spoken Latin which is a sort of rather colloquial vernacular form of the, the Latin you can see uh, written. Um, and possibly one or two other things go on. Uh, Irish, for example, is probably in the mix. Um, and probably some form of Germanic Frisian-type dialect, which is maybe used as a sort of lingua franca. 200 years later, it looks as though everybody is speaking either primitive Welsh in the West, or or some form of this Germanic dialect in the East. But we can't really be sure whether that is because of an invasion of Germanic-speaking peoples, which is the traditional view of Bede and Gildas, or whether there's something really quite subtle going on. Pe- people eat McDonald's and drive Japanese cars and use, and, and use German technology, but we're not actually subject to military conquest by those people. So... The artefacts that archaeologists find are not biographies of the people with whom we find them. So what we have to do is strip strip everything away and and start from scratch. Firstly, can we reconstruct anything of the politics of the early 5th century? And the answer is, I I think we can now. Secondly, can we look back from 600, look at the institutions that we are pretty sure are in place then, and find any means by which we can trace those back to things that are happening before 400. In other words, not looking for absolute discontinuity or catastrophe, but looking for what 
might be in place already in 400 that might morph into something else without the absolute necessity for um, famine, sword and fire um, to, to have destroyed Roman society. Um, so you mentioned earlier, of course, that there was a dramatic change in society between the times we know about 400 and 600. Obviously, language that you've just discussed there was one way. But what are some of the other ways that we would see that change? Well, I suppose the most dramatic thing, and we still don't know, we, we can't explain it, is latest estimates for the population of late Roman Britain are in the region of three to three and a half million people. That's a lot more than archaeologists used to think, but... There's, there's a lot of archaeology out there now. Um, by Bede's day, or, or, or even before Bede's day, you can't imagine anything like that population. I mean, the largest place in Bede's day was probably his own monastery at Jarrow on, on, the, on, on the River Tyne. And you'd be pushing to have 600 people there. We're talking a dramatic decline in population. The Roman population of Britain doesn't recur until after Doomsday Book. So uh, how would how would you explain that? Is it emigration? Is it um, famine? Is it disease? Well, it's the $64,000 question. There are a few ways of accounting for population. Okay, mass emigration. We've seen it happen historically. In Ireland, it happens uh, after the famine. So famine and emigration is a possibility. Another possibility is, is a, a huge increase in infant mortality. By no means impossible. More subtly, what we may have is um, a slow decline in the birth rate, perhaps an increase in the death rate, and a decline in population over maybe 30, 40, 50, even 100 years, which doesn't look anything like as dramatic as a catastrophic collapse in the population. But we go back to evidence of absence or absence of evidence. If all those people are dying in the streets, as Gildas would have us believe, why don't we find the bodies? We never find bodies lying in the streets. <laughs> and the other thing, you know, from an archaeological perspective we don't find is if people are running away, they, they are leaving behind their homes, their possessions, anything they can't carry. If that's happening in Britannia, why don't we find the stuff lying on the floors where people left it? We don't find that stuff. We don't find the refuse of Pompeii or Chernobyl of people running away for fear of their lives. We simply don't find it. What we, what we do find is space being repurposed. And that's a much subtler story to tell. So if, if metal workers are digging holes in mosaic floors in villas, why are they doing that? Why, instead of inviting your elite friends round to dinner, <laughs> Are you, are you smelting and forging metal in the dining room? That's, that is dramatic. I think the point about the Roman villas intrigues me because something that's really intangible and intriguing about this period is the idea that there was all this, these massive advancements in the Roman era. So we're talking about currency, we're talking about underfloor heating in Roman villas, that kind of thing, that then just really drops off and seems to be lost. And that's a very intriguing concept of how you can have advancements and then lose them and history isn't just a story of progress being built on progress how do you see that story well the first question i ask is is the elite roman villa dining suite advancement 
or is it grotesque, conspicuous consumption of the sort that eventually people get really sick of? Um, and I and I rather worry, wonder about that. Here's an interesting thing: if if you take Jane Austen's England, okay, we have great country houses, which may be thought of as the, the the equivalent of Roman villas. In other words, there aren't that many Roman villas compared to the number of different other sorts of settlement. They're just easy to find, they're easily dated, and people like digging them up because a mosaic floor is an awful lot easier to dig <laughs> than a subtle 5th century uh, occupation space. Imagine the Jane Austen stately home, plenty of them still around. Okay, most of them, of course, are not stately homes now. They are hotels, wedding venues, they get repurposed because actually the ostentation of the great palatial stately home looks pretty grotesque in the 21st century. The other thing is that those were places of assembly. So you think of a a Jane Austen ball, as it were, as a great place where all the people from miles around come and um, networks are networked, patronage is is conducted, marriages are agreed. Well, those places are not like Roman villas. They're much more like Iron Age hill forts, where grand tribal assemblies happen, business is conducted, uh, money, you know, money and tribute changes hands, and 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 wives and husbands are put together. Horses are traded, as it were. The Roman villa is not a place like that. It's it's a place for private ostentation. Lots of absentee landlords, remember, in Britain. Most of those Roman villas are not owned by people who are living in them. Okay. So, at the end of the fourth, early fifth century, what seems to be happening is instead of a a sort of tax, a central tax and state system um, where you your produce is taxed and then you never see the benefit, what seems to be happening is that local authorities are raising... Uh, renders of food and services which they draw to themselves Um, and in that case the Roman villa model doesn't work very well because because actually when you gather services and goods to a central place and and by services and goods I mean people bringing uh, cartloads of timber we're talking honey and ale and horses and sheep and wool and and craft products giving those directly to the centre of the estate, one of the the key purposes of that system is you have to redistribute it. You have to hold feasts. You have to host assemblies, if you like. You have to host the sorts of assemblies you see in Jane Austen. And yet the Roman villa is totally inappropriate for such activities because it's a private dining space. It doesn't work for assembly. So actually what I think is happening is that Roman villas are either being repurposed to process the goods that come into those places. In other words, they become recycling institutions um, or they're converted to assembly sites. And in that case, those assembly sites tend to be built slightly away from the villa and they look like barns. So what I'm saying is that the Mead Hall of Beowulf is a barn conversion. We actually have direct evidence of this happening in, in Northumbria at a, at a Roman fort called Bird Oswald, right on Hadrian's Wall. It's an extraordinary, wonderful atmospheric site uh, up high up on the borders of Cumbria and, and Northumberland, where the Roman granary of the fort um, has its underfloor heating filled in, 
It's rebuilt in timber, exactly the same size, exactly the same alignment. A hearth is inserted. Why would you put a hearth in a granary unless you want the whole thing to burn down? The answer is what you're doing is you're gathering produce from the local area into this building, which serves as a barn. But periodically, the people who support you and who you protect from anybody else who might want to hurt them, they come into this place as an assembly and effectively you recreate the social dynamics of the Iron Age in a Roman granary that is effectively now the mead hall of a private military retinue. So your tr the transition from Rome to Beowulf is fascinating and dynamic, but is that a revolution or is that just a recognition that the world is a bit of a different place? The emperor doesn't exist anymore. Your lord is a much more local lord, and he may be the former commander of the fort. Or in a villa, he may be the former steward whose boss is never coming back and who takes over the place and reorganises it as a local centre of redistributive communal dependency. In other words, much more like what we see in the early medieval period. So you see that as, as kind of the the origins of, of the feudal system of the later medieval period? Or is that is this something different? Well, before we get to feudal, feudalism is, is where some of this ends up. But actually, I think you've got a, a more interesting, uh, subtle picture emerging of, of lordship. We know that in 600, if you're, we know this from a, from a, a law of the kings of Kent, that if you're wandering through Kent, not on the king's highway, i.e. the Roman road system, and you do not blow your horn to announce your presence, you may be taken up, i.e. you're going to be arrested. Why is that? Because people moving through that landscape must belong to somebody. Everybody belongs to somebody. Everybody has a lord, and the first thing you're going to ask somebody if you meet them is, who is your lord? Nobody is totally free, and at the bottom there are people who are very, very unfree. But essentially what you've got is a, is a network of patronage. The closest model for this, this society is, is um, a naval frigate of the age of Nelson, where you have a captain who has dependents. And the, the loyalty between captain and dependent works both ways. He is theirs, he is their lord, as much as they are his dependents. It, it's much more subtle than a feudal system of, of uh, pure and simple, dictatorial, top-to-bottom uh, power and command. It's much more about networks of dependence, social relations, linked families, family alliances, clan and kin. And what it does is it fosters social cohesion when there is no state. One thing we can be sure is that by about 460, there isn't a state operating. There is almost certainly up until about 430, 440. Uh, uh, that's when I think the British state collapses. So I want to pick up on that point there about um, mm. the collapse of a state. So if the state collapses and you, you break down into smaller, more localised entities, yep. um, what role does regional identity play in this? Because this is something you discuss and you said earlier about how you wanted to kind of escape the nationalist view of this history. 
can you tell us about how regional identities fractured? Because today we think primarily in England of the North-South divide, but back in 400 or, or the 5th century, where did those fault lines fall? Well, this is for me, this is the really fascinating thing. And this is where I, I've tried in the book to go back from a known uh, snapshot of what we get in the middle of the 7th century and see if we can see the origins of this local political structure emerging. And I think I think we can. If you piece together the names of all the places and peoples that we can gather together from all the different sources we've got, I think you can create a map of Britain in, say, five, five, 500, 550, which has two to 300 small identities. Some of these are so small that that we think they are the the pagi, the the little the little rural areas of Roman Britain, of which we get very okay. We 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 know the name of just one Roman pagus in Britain, uh, a small uh, group. They're probably no more than a large clan called the Debussy in Kent. We know very little about them except they had some woodland. By by the seventh century, we've got two or three hundred of these names from the kingdom, Mercia, Northumbria. Kent and so on, right down to these tiny places. Um, these these appear in a brilliant document called Tribal Hydage, which is you know that that's the the historical gold dust, which records this hierarchy of peoples and places who own tribute to a great overlord. We're not sure which one, but probably King Edwin of Northumbria. And we know from doomsday tracking back that some other names of some other smaller peoples and areas survive as really tiny local names, names that even now, some of them actually still survive um, in in river names and in very localised areas. If you patch all that together, you've got these couple of hundred names. And what, what appears to be happening is that in each one of these small areas, a big man, for want of a better word, a lord emerges, who is able to come to some sort of social contract with dependents who uh, bring goods and services to a central place. And as I say, there'll be things like honey and ale and butter and geese and eggs and, you know, the the produce of the land, but also an obligation owed, an an obligation um, that, that if your son is of warrior age, he might serve in this Lord's retinue. If we think of this model of lordship, starting really before the end of the Roman Empire, when central taxation goes over to local taxation. Local taxation being gathered by lords to a central place, and those central places becoming the centres of territories, most of them actually are bound by or focused on small rivers. And one of the fascinating things about that is that a lot of the early names that come through to us in tribal hydage are things like the people of the River Arrow, the people on the river team, uh, the the dwellers on the Witham, they're, they are, they're, if you like, landscape focuses for people who regard themselves as belonging to each other and all owing tribute and, um, and probably their family connections to a lord. So if you, if you tie the people on the land to their lord and you give those people the name that effectively describes that unit of lordship... Then what emerges is a, is a small-scale geography of Britain emerging from the Roman Empire and becoming 
the early medieval society that we see very, very clearly in Bede. And one of the key and most beautiful things to emerge from from the historical sources, I mean, a, a tiny throwaway line in Bede who says that uh, the Northumbrian King Edwin, uh, when he had converted to Christianity, took a Roman priest, Paulinus, to his palace at Yevering in Northumberland, and he spent 36 days there. Now, for Bede, this is a story about baptism and conversion. But a, a colleague of mine, Colm O'Brien, who's, who's a great Bede expert, looked at this passage many, many times and thought, asked himself the question, why is a great Lord going to one place and staying there for 36 days? What is 36 days? What does it mean? It's not a lunar month. It's not a number of weeks. What is that? And he, in a flash of brilliant inspiration, he realised that 36 days is a tenth of a year. The implications of that are, are really profound for understanding this period, because if you think of a Lord sitting in a hall, a small version of Beowulf's Herod, and all the goods and services come to that Lord, but eventually what emerges is, is a Lordship that is controlling two or three of these places. Either another Lord dies, or you kill him in battle, or you marry into that family, and what you get is Lordship over more than one of these small territories. Well, if the goods are still going to the central place in that territory, how are you going to consume them? The answer is, you have to visit each one in turn. And that is how itinerant medieval kingship begins. You go to each of these central places and you consume its render. How do we work out what that means in economics? It's this brilliant insight. You go for 36 days because you're consuming a 10% tax effectively on that land. And so you need 10 of those estates, if you're a king, between which you travel in a sort of progress through the year, just the way that medieval kings did. It's a brilliant insight into the, how the whole system works. Effectively, the Roman 10% taxation system survives. And of course, because kings like Edwin were able to transfer the rights to collect render directly to the church to support it, the church inherits a right to a 10% tax on the land it controls, and that's the tithe system, which is still going in Britain right into the middle of the 19th century. It is yeah. a story of continuity, but just down unexpected alleyways. It's like, and yet it's unlike. And into this, we try and fit the figure of you-know-who, the A-word, the unspeakable, uh, dare we call his name, uh, Arthur. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You know, I can call it the period 4, 425 to 585 if you really, you know, if we want to get that nerdy about it, but I don't really. Dark Ages is, you know, we've got to call it something. We call it the Arthurian period and it drives us mad as well. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
I think I do have to ask you about Arthur since he you is in, in, you know, he's in the subtitle of your book, even though he's not in the book itself very much. Well, he's not in there much, no. Why do you think it is that everybody is so obsessed with Arthur when we're talking about this period of history? And, and also, what's your verdict on where can we actually track him down in any kind of historical record? All right, let me let me cheat that question by asking another one, which is why does everybody think that archaeologists aren't interested in Arthur? Okay? <laughs> because people write many, many books about Arthur and he's immortalized in, you know, in drama and theater and music and poetry and all sorts of things. And yet you talk to almost any archaeologist and they'll be nah, Arthur, irrelevant, not interesting. And people have the right to say, why aren't archaeologists interested in Arthur? It's not that we think that Arthur didn't exist. If a figure like Arthur didn't exist, there were certainly Arthurs. There were certainly people who, who, uh, and I think if you put him anywhere, you have to put him very early in the 5th century. He's he's Roman, if he's anything, I think. His his context is Roman. He's, He's not described ever as a king. He's described as... Arthur fought with them against them in those days with the kings of the Britons, but he was not king. He was Dux Bellorum, their leader in war. He's a military commander. He's not a king. Um, by the year 500, when Arthur is put into a series of annals with dates next to his name, which, you know, gives people hope to think that they're, they're real dates. They're not, but, you know, you can hope. Um, people who are fighting are not military commanders in the pay of kings there aren't any kings in in the year 500 well possibly in wales but even then only possibly um and there are only these petty lords and they do their own fighting they don't employ mercenaries so and the the other thing about arthur that that really annoys archaeologists and, and and it really comes out in a sense in the silhouette provided by his absence in the first kingdom is that ask yourself what Arthur tells you about this system of lordship developing that I'm constructing for this period. Where is he? Where is his lordship? Where are his territories? Who are his people? What's his genealogy? And he gives us nothing. He's not a territorial lord. And therefore, he doesn't help us explain anything about the political development of, of, of a new geography of, of people and space and lordship. And that's the real problem with Arthur. Not that he might not have existed, but that he doesn't give us anything useful f- with which we can build anything else. So when he's a slightly obscure and perhaps irrelevant figure, how has he then been transformed into the superhero of early medieval history? I suppose the most obvious way of looking at that is if you look at the time when these hero legends are emerging, Beowulf, first written down probably in the ninth century, uh, the Historia Britonum, which is where Arthur appears in narrative form, his list of battles and so on, written first half of the ninth century. Uh, Nationalist poems uh, written by uh, Welsh-British people against kings of Wessex, ninth century, invasion of the Vikings and the beginning of the origin myths 
written down as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle of the Kings of Wessex, 9th century. All this stuff belongs to the 9th century. And this is when the nationalism of you're either Wessex or you're against Wessex emerges. So this is all about the politics of the 9th century. And in the 9th century, everyone's looking for either a saint, Cuthbert, Columba, David, Andrew, all, all the saints. Uh, and in the case of Wessex, interestingly enough, they don't have a saint. Swithin, I mean, Swithin, really? It's not like Cuthbert. In the 9th century, we're in a period of, of huge uncertainty. Uh, the church is collapsing. Uh, Scandinavian raiders are first raiding and then and then attempting to conquer. You've got the origin of you know big powerful dynasties in Wessex and Mercia. It's just politics, and they have to look back to heroic forebears to say not only were we great once, we can be great again. And they those myths coalesce around the most convenient heroic person. It's all a handy so, historical rewrite. Yeah, that's right. And and of course, in some ways, that's disappointing for the sort of pseudo-history of Arthur. I mean, you can spend a lifetime looking for early medieval battle sites. Good luck. <laughs> you know? I mean, I get people, I get people, correspondents all the time saying they've found a battle site, you know, a famous battle site. And and they, they want to convince me because there's a there's a certain hill that looks like a hill that might be a hill described in something. I mean, you know, it's it's fun. It's not very convincing. And I, and I say, do you want to know what will convince me? And they say, go on. I say, weapon blade injuries. I want bodies with holes in their heads. We don't find them. We were talking about identity. And I just wondered if we did have any idea of how people at this time kind of perceived of their own identity. So obviously they were living under this lordship system. Was that purely just a political entity or did was there something about culture and regional culture that was different to say the conception that they were previously Roman I mean I don't even know whether people thought of themselves as Roman we don't do we no uh, what I mean this this whole identity thing is fascinating because when archaeologists look at the the fifth century what they find is a, is a lot of cremation urns especially in East Anglia and in the east of England southeast of England and uh, these things are intensely personal memorials to the dead. I mean, one of them even has the runic inscription of the name of a woman who, who may be the woman in the pot, or she may be the, the woman who brewed the beer for the funeral feast. We, we don't know. But, um, you know, what does the content of that urn tell us about that woman's identity, about whom she belonged, whom she felt she belonged to? Well, I think the first most obvious thing to say is that people belong to their household. The principal social unit is the household, okay, which consists of uh, a head of the household, probably you know, male and female heads of the household, and various levels of free and unfree dependents, you know, the lowest of whom will be um, people who are literally unfree, and then there'll be unmarried young women will be pretty low down, uh, boys too young to bear weapons, to be weapon-worthy, they'll be pretty low down the pecking order, and then all sorts of collateral relations. So you you have different identities. Some seem to be identities on blank canvases. Um, and if you think, for example, of people living in the Fens of East Anglia, their sense of identity would be very, very different from people living in the Highlands um, uh, or on the coast because their environment is so completely different. 
So, you know, what we see in the Fens, for example, is a much stronger sense of communal um, communal sharing of resources, um, a sense of identity. Uh, the names give give their identities away. The the people of the muddy marsh, the people of the muddy river, and the people of the spring. Um, you know, all those sorts of names tell us quite a lot about what people may have thought of themselves. Um, and then, and then some people clearly have have a strong sense of lordship because we we get a whole load of names coming through that are the names of people, the people of Frotha, the people of Denninger, you know, all, all these other names that that imply that people are looking back to, as it were, a sort of ancestral founder of their clan. So I think what we've got, what's really so exciting, is that I think we've got a very broad, eclectic, regional and local mosaic of identities. Some people identifying with, with land and with households, some people identifying with perhaps a, a, a much broader uh, group of people who, who identify by the, the way they go about life and death. I think people had very strong senses of attachment to house, family, local place, uh, probably local spirits, and maybe to to bigger regional entities, you know, in 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 the British areas, Wales and the southwest, and and what we now call, uh, you know, Scotland and Cumbria, you know, it, it may be that Iron Age models of tribal lordship run right through the Roman period and into the fifth sixth centuries. That's the implication of of Gildas. So I think we've got a really dynamic patchwork of local identities, and I think you know if you. If, as I do, you, you spend a lot of time walking through the British Isles, you actually see some of those regional identities change really quite quite quickly. I mean, for example, you know, the North-South Divide, which is uh, always jokingly said to begin at the Watford Gap. Watford Gap's a really interesting place. It really is the divide because no Viking ever settled southwest of the Watford Gap on Watling Street. Why? Because Watling Street is the line between all the rivers that flow north and east and all the rivers that flow south and west. It's a real, it's a real internal frontier in Britain's landscape. And right into the Viking period, people are sensitive to those very small geographical um, niceties, if you like. Of course, this, this period is traditionally referred to as the Dark Ages. But in recent years, a lot of historians have pushed back against that title, saying that they they find it a bit um, a bit too negative about the kind of cultural um, the culture of the time. What's your opinion on that debate? Do you think we should co- still call it the Dark Ages? I suppose first of all, I don't care. Se- second of all, if Bede has only got nineteen lines to say about it, that's dark. I mean, dark as an obscure. I mean, in terms of cultural exuberance and poetry and art. I- and culture and sophistication, no, no, not dark at all. Um, but in terms of obscurity, I mean, if, you know, I, I use the term early medieval to my academic colleagues and they know exactly what I mean. Uh, you know, we talk, we talk an internal language between us, you know, just the way archaeologists talk about an archaeological site in a way that, you know, an archaeologist would never call a, an excavation a dig. A dig is a public word for an excavation. It's an excavation. So, you know, we all use different terms. I'm very happy to... I get told off all the time for calling it the Dark Ages. I don't really care because because it's 
it's like calling the Roman period the Roman period. It's not really the Roman period. It's just, it's a useful tag. And for a period that is so, it's the most obscure period in our history, it's dark in the sense that you have to hold up a candle to get the merest glimpse of what's going on. But you, you, it's no more than candlelit. So for me, it can stay the Dark Ages, but I can call it the early medieval. And I can be, you know, I can call it the period four, 425 to 585 if you really, you know, if we want to get that nerdy about it, but I don't really. Dark Ages is, you know, we've got to call it something. We call it the Arthurian period and it drives us mad as well. That was Max Adams. His book, The First Kingdom, Britain in the Age of Arthur, is available now, published by Head of Zeus. A version of this interview also appears in the February issue of BBC History magazine. That's available now and includes features on the dissolution of the monasteries, the Blitz and Sutton Hoo. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Mm-hmm.